I'm Dean Deal. And I'm Steve Hoskins. And you're listening to This is the Good Life, a podcast devoted to deciphering what it means to live as a Christian in this day and age. And not just a Christian, but as philosophers, theologians, and maybe even decent golfers. And a marketing guy. Yeah, used to be a marketing guy. Yeah, so speak for yourself. As two longtime college professors, we share a common goal to bring virtue and character back into the conversation of what it means to be Christian. We'll do this by unpacking the thoughts of both our current culture and prominent philosophers like Aristotle, Kant, Descartes, and a guy called Jesus Christ. You'll find that some pretty old thinkers had some pretty good ideas. So join us for a conversation worth having about life worth living. After all, this is The Good Life. Welcome to This Is The Good Life, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about doing your duty. I'm doing my duty. You certainly are, and I appreciate it. You know, this idea has been around a long time, and there's threads of it through a lot of the philosophies we've talked about already, but it's time to come around and really go deeper into this idea that for some people, the highest good, the greatest thing you can do is just knuckle down and do Do your duty. Do you know anyone? Is there anyone in your family who has always been about this great philosophy of do your duty. You know what? We could name this episode Growing Up Nazarene. (laughs) Yes, we could, but we need to get to the episode. Let's get into it. This is The Good Life. So, Steve, were you a uh, a Boy Scout? I uh, was a Boy Scout for three weeks. Um, You know, it's it's so many things in my life. So long. Yeah. Well, I was surprised I made it that long. They actually asked me never to come back, but but I was a Boy Scout uh, for three weeks until we went on the camping trip, and uh, I found out they have matches, and uh, and uh, you know that you you were outside and you were alone, and you know there's matches, and there's a lot of fun to be had. And then they said, "Well, this has been nice. Please don't ever come back." Yes. Uh, But yeah, no, I was a Boy Scout for a short time. Yeah, I would Um, imagine that that the reason they didn't want you is because of the following, which I remember so clearly holding up. I can't remember if it's three fingers. Three fingers. Three fingers on just like the Trinity. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sure that's why. (laughs) On my honor, I will do my best. I promise to do my best. They've changed it. Oh, they've changed it from promise to do. I've got the actual pledge. I'm gonna read it. All right, good. On my honor. I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Morally straight. Wow. And you can't be morally straight with matches. No, no, you can't. <laughs> nor, nor, can you, nor can you with, uh, well, anyway, probably don't need to say that. No, but, but, no, but you know, yeah, it's really hard exactly. to keep morally straight when there's so much temptation in the world. That's exactly right. I will do my duty to God and my country. So so this episode, we're going to talk about duty. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've talked about happiness, and I made the comment that, you know, for the unexamined life, one of the temptations, if you're going to direct your life at something and what's going to drive your decisions is what's going to make me happy. Yeah. I, I, do I do this job or do I do this job? Well, which one's going to make me happy? Do I marry this person, this person, buy this house, this car? What's going to make me happy? And then the bigger decisions of life, how we go through our lives. What is my life aimed at? It's happiness. I have some vision of a good life that ends up with me laying in a swimming pool with a glass. You know, that might actually be uh, uh, so bad, but uh, that is the end. Yes, that that is the end. That's not a stopping point. No. 
That is the end, is yeah. me ending is up the, in a pool with a glass of tea. And, and whether that, where you say that end is summum bonum or, or the, you know, the yeah, greatest good. Or the telos. Or, or the telos or the purpose. It is the end. That's right. I would say that the the equal temptation for the life that's where you're not being intentional is instead of having an end, instead of having a telos, instead of having a summum bonum, you just substitute in duty. Yeah. I'll do my duty. To yeah. God and my country, and obey the Scout Law, or whatever plug in, yeah. whatever law you've chosen to to serve, because it, it's almost like making a decision without making a decision. I'm going to do my duty. Yeah, and of course, this is um, so you know to sort of frame this up a little bit for our students and people who are listening. This is the great debate between utilitarianism, John Stuart Mill. Uh, that's you know hap- human happiness, and it's not happiness for uh, any sort of degradated reasons. The greatest it's, good it's for the, the greatest good. And, and, and it requires the use of higher faculties. It requires that you be your best self to use your language, yeah. which I think is the right language. You know, I want to be the best me I can be. And that means there has to be some moral purity involved. There has to be some great sense of being in touch with the with God or being in touch with the divine or a higher purpose, however, you know, whatever faith you are wants to say it. But that's utilitarianism. On the other hand, the great tradition of philosophical ethics, is the the deontological or the duty-based ethics of Immanuel Kant. And so quite often when students get into philosophy, we don't do as good a job as we could teaching them about the history of philosophy, but we, we just sort of throw them into the questions. Are you a person for whom you need to learn to make decisions based on happiness or or human good or what makes you happy or what, you know, uh, leads to a, a full, great sense of fulfilled self? Or are you a person who makes decisions based on what's right? You don't take into account your happiness. You just do your duty because it's the right thing to do. In fact, we're just a little suspicious of happiness. Yes, we are. Because if you make a decision that makes you happy, was that really the right? Right. Those of us that have had duty uh, pushed on us. And probably if we were truthful, we're more than a little suspicious because we know that anything that makes you happy can't be good. Uh, yes, I, this uh, yeah. was this was the world I grew up in in church. Yeah. This was the world I grew up in in a, a sanctified American South. You know, you knew that there was something precious and something pure beyond any sort of representation in this world, beyond a musical representation, beyond a literary representation, beyond an artistic representation. There was some standard of goodness out there that was incontrovertible. And you were in touch with that when you did the right thing, because it was not not for any purely selfish reason, not because it made you feel good, but you did this because it was the right thing to do. You gave someone who asked you for money, whether they were a beggar on the street or a person in your house or a friend at school who couldn't afford you know, milk at lunch. And, and you did that not because you felt good giving them money. You did it because it was the right thing to do. And at some point, is it even a choice? No, it's not. You have to. Because when you are really in touch with that, and this is what Kant calls, you know, the great moral principle out there. Okay. This is what Kant says is sort of the categorical imperative. It's, It's a standard that we live up and into by acts of our own will. 
but we do that because it is the right thing to do, not because there's any good consequences of our action, i.e. your friend gets milk and nutrition where they wouldn't have it, or a person who wouldn't eat tonight who's standing there at the red light with a sign that says, please help, God bless, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason. But you do something simply and surely because you know beyond any shadow of a doubt, this this isn't about it's not formed by life in this world. It's not formed by pleasure or happiness on your part. It's not formed by benefit to someone else. You simply know this is the right thing to do. And you are, therefore, duty-bound. And the word for duty is deon, or de- so deontological ethics, is duty-bound ethics. We often look at duty ethics in a way we see a person doing something mindlessly. That's not Kant. Kant says, you know the good, you know it beyond any shadow of a doubt. It's an absolute imperative. It must, it's command, must be done. You know the good and you do the good, regardless of benefit. And that kind of an ethic is interesting because immediately somebody says, so you should always tell the truth, right? And say, yeah. Said, so when you tell the truth, you're being good. Yeah, that's right. So the people who turned in, and you know, this is one of the great case studies, uh, you know, this is the way philosophers do their business. We find history to fit the facts, uh, <laughs> which is a great, which is why I'm a historian in my other life uh, and a philosopher in this one. But, you know, so the people who turned in Anne Frank during World War II were just being good citizens doing the good. See, and that, that's the heart of this issue. Yeah. Oh, when, it is. When, when you take duty as the highest good, as the telos, what is, your, what is your purpose in life to do my duty? Yep. What happens when I have conflicting duties? Yeah. What happens when two clear rights run afoul of each other? Yeah. And this, this is where Kant's system, I don't want to say that it, in the history of philosophy that it's proved— um, uh, not doable or something, but but it's it's proved at least very debatable and complex because all of a sudden we have conflicting goods, except that in a perfect moral universe, the goods never conflict. That's where we struggle here. And part of it is, is again, Kant would say, or would say something like this, the problem is you have mistaken a cultural norm for a good. The idea that um, all people, for instance, deserve justice is, is thought to be a universal maxim. Well, really? You know, do all people deserve justice? Did Anne Frank deserve justice? Did she deserve that? And now all of a sudden we've got a hot debate on our hands. See, and I've got to think World War I and World War II had to plunge so much of this conversation into absolute chaos. Oh, it did. Because you've got two armies across a field of fire from each other with the same God, same religion, yeah. same beliefs, same yeah. God is on our side. Germans yeah. running across the field on their belt buckle. God right. is on our side. Yeah. And you got the other side praying. It's like a basketball game. Yeah. They were both sides praying, God help us yeah. win. Well, yeah. okay, well, God can only answer one of those, pra- <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. those prayers. Yeah. Well, Mark Twain, so, by the way, the other great reference point is from the 19th century, and it's Mark yeah. Twain's little short story called The War Prayer. Yeah. And it's about mothers who pray for their sons at war with the each American other. American Civil War. American Civil War. You know, I, I stood with my kids. I can't remember if I've told this in this series or not, but I stood with yeah. my kids at uh, Gettysburg. Yes. 
at the site of Pickett's Charge. Yep. And we stood in the tree line with my girls. And I was like, all right, girls, I want you to come here. And we had just seen the movie, you know, the, the classic movie about it. Called Gettysburg. Called Get- of all things. It was a great name. Of all things called as Gettysburg. A, look, as a marketing guy, I love simplicity. <laughs> if you're going to make a movie about Gettysburg, call it, call get, call call it Gettysburg. Gettysburg. You know? The Charge of the Light Brigade. Exactly. No, it's yeah. Gettysburg. Exactly. And so I asked my girls, I'm like, all right, well, look at that field. You guys saw what they did. You got, And I pointed out, like, there's cannons here. There's cannons here. They're pointing across the field where they're going to hit you from the sides. There's cannons in front of you. They're going to hit you from the front. And they're not shooting cannonballs at some point. They're shooting tiny bits of metal. And so the chances of you surviving going across this field are very small. What makes you step out of this tree line? Oh, wow. What makes you step across? I said, what do you think made them step across? Yeah. Duty. Yeah. For most of, yeah. you know, most well, of no, them, no, no, no. You, you've really hit on a great example because the ways in which we rationalize military action. Right. I can remember beginning to be confused by this when I was about five, uh, 1968. Uh, were there matches? No, <laughs> there were matches. Yes, there were, but they weren't mine at that point. I didn't get those until the Boy Scouts handed them to me and said, take care of yourself. They just didn't know any yeah, better. Yeah, no, they yeah, should have yeah. thought that one through. Um, but in 1968, Dr. King was killed. Uh, in 1968, I became aware uh, as I went to school that I had classmates who were being whose lives were being affected by something called the Vietnam War. Uh, there were two kids in our class who had people that we were praying for in this little Lutheran kindergarten, the ABC kindergarten in, in Whitehall, Columbus, Ohio, and they would take prayer requests. And there were two kids in the room who asked us to pray for family members. I think one was an uncle. I'm pulling this out of my memory, but who were involved in the Vietnam conflict. And I'm like, oh, what in the world? is going on here. And so I began to pay attention. And as I've grown older, I've listened to the ways we talk about why does a person step out from a tree line into the direct line of fire, the line of, and and because of duty. I've also heard it said, because this will benefit your children or this will benefit your family. And I've heard it said of others, because this will provide power to your country, whether that power is military power or economic power, you know, or moral power, this because this is a righteous cause. And now we're into the debate about what are the motives behind duty. And right. the answer, and the answer to that is duty. That's the issue. You know, and one of the things that's really good about that that movie, they show General Longstreet. Yeah. Longstreet doesn't want to attack. At that time, and he doesn't want to attack on this one side. He just said, we're just going to get killed if we come in. And eventually, you know, Lee, played by uh, Martin Sheen. Yeah, Martin Sheen. Beautiful job. Yeah. He basically just says, the danger of a general is you love your, you need to love the army, and then you have to order the death of the thing you love. And he pretty much Ooh. shames him into, oh, wow. into, into doing the fight. But yeah. you can see wow. in Longstreet's face. Yeah. And this is just a movie. Right. It's but just it, The way they decided to, to portray it is... The only thing that makes him order that. He can't even give the word. He just shakes his head yes. And uh, he knows he's sending them to their death. And yeah. it's duty. Yeah. And at some point, you know, I, I wonder how many times it's like, I don't know why I'm going to charge across that field. So mm-hmm. I'm going to abdicate, which is so interesting to me because yeah. Yeah. Kant stresses autonomy so much. But in some ways, choosing duty is an abdication of, one's of own, your free will of one's to decide own free will, your own one's own autonomy. That's exactly what it and is. And yet, I think that 
one of the reasons why this is complex and difficult is because Kant, you know, it's it's real murky here. Kant, it's a good thing Kant was not born in the age of Freud. Uh, one can only <laughs> set one's nightmares in order. Uh, but 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 you know, Kant gets real murky here because he says that in that act of you you said the word release. That's not quite his word, but it's it's good enough. And, and he says in that act of of being the self. Okay. In releasing the self into what's called, and it's, there's a difference in the German words, the will and the willkür. And the willkür is the higher good. And he says to not surrender, but to join. Yeah, it's, it's a tough word for us in English. My will to thy will, to the greater good, okay? He says, is the greatest act of autonomy. And you go, ah, because what, here, here's where, and what's really interesting in, in the progression of the way we've done these episodes, I'm sure someone that's listening to these in order is like, you guys are painting me into a box where there's no choices. Yeah. Because you're telling me that, you know, nobody wants to think that the ends justifies the means. If the end is good enough, you should be able to go through any means to get to it because you had a great end. Yeah. Happiness or whatever your right. your end is. Now what we're saying with, with Kant is... If your means were right, yeah. you don't have to worry about the end. When you decided to do your duty, you're done. Yeah. You have no responsibility for the outcome. Well, there are, for, for many great thinkers in the world, for many intellectual, theological traditions, that's exactly right. It's about motive. It, it's about the perfection of the will, you know, my will doing whatever should be done because it's the right thing to do. I know people. I grew up with people. I can't make this claim. I, you might, David could, your brother could, but you know, who who would say with great veracity, with real truthfulness, I never told a lie in my life. No, I'm going, I, 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 you I, can't um, say that. <laughs> I can't yeah. say that I haven't told a lie yeah. today. <laughs> today, yeah, I can't say I haven't told a lie in the last hour. You know, one of my students. I think come I up just and, lied right now. Yeah, my students. No, anyway, we're going to stop. But but you know, they they could say with real veracity, they'd always told the truth, and I'm going. Why? Number one, why would you do? But number two, number two, for them, this is an expression of their human ethical goodness. And there are, are lots of really fine traditions that ascribe to the highest level of human ethical practice for this reason. The difficulty that we have is that there may be another answer that is better, and it may be that there's not a real thing out there that's—and this is where I think Kant is difficult. If you look at what Kant has to say about ethical goodness, it has no homeland. It doesn't have a community in which it rests. There is no place. There is no culture. There is technically no fully formed human person who has ever— embodied or could tell the story of a perfect ethical life. Well, and this really gets into McIntyre after virtue yeah, a does. lot because, you know, his whole premise is all of these philosophies happened within a context. And so for Kant, when he says the good is known, you just choose it. Yeah. 
It's the good for someone that is in his century, in his country, well, at his time, never, in his culture, in his... Never forget, Kant never traveled more than 30 miles. This is the historian. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Never forget, Kant never traveled more than 30 miles from the spot he was born. Well, I can't forget it because I didn't know it, but, yeah, but, now, but now, but I now I do. Now you do. You and have so, now made me, you've burdened me with that knowledge. I have, I have, which means, of course, everybody given the same ethical dilemma would make the same choice. Well, they all grew up in the same culture. That's exactly yeah. it. Every, everything he had ever witnessed was the same. But he he would say that what makes something ethically good is that apart from any culture, out on its own, some great moral maxim, okay, the categorical imperative. So it's, you know, for instance, one should never lie, ever. And you think about that. And if people hadn't lied, how many people would have been killed in the Holocaust? And we know the tragedy of the Holocaust. We know the reality of the Holocaust. We know how you know, we hear the horror stories. One can't read the diaries or hear the testimonies or visit somewhere like Auschwitz or experience, you know, even a, a film, you know, presentation of that like Schindler's List and not understand. But without people lying, how many more people? Well, and then when you start suffered. when you really start getting out of Western culture and begin to get into Eastern culture yeah. and other other cultures that we've encountered as the world has become smaller, mm-hmm. if you're honest with yourself, you start to realize there are other frameworks of thinking, other entire worldviews of thinking that make a an idea of a common morality or a common goodness harder and harder to arrive at. Yeah. In our own sense, yeah, uh, that that what makes perfect sense to me may make absolutely no sense to somebody that's come up in a completely different culture. Yeah. You know, Western culture is so pervasive. You know, we can say that it's we're we're pretty arrogant about thinking the entire world is the parts of the world we know and understand. Give me a map, yeah, and the places I can fill in on that map are pretty much going to be Western. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty gonna be very Western. And then there's this and, thing on to the east that's all painted red, by the way, <laughs> always. And, 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 and it's like I, uh, uh, that. I remember playing Risk. What did they call it in Risk? Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> my, yeah. I did not have to take world geography, and yeah. I feel the lack well, uh, well, acutely. One of the things that, that, that Kantian ethics, or really the Kantian intellectual framework, allows for that, that joins us to other ways of thinking is that what becomes pure is not the act even. It's not the consequences of the act or the benefit of the act, but the thing that becomes shared in terms of ethical goodness is motive. And and, and there, there is a whole range of conversations. One of the reasons we want to have these conversations is because these are questions that matter. And I do think that motive matters. However, I'm not sure motive is the thing that matters most. That's it. See, and you could say that about everything we're talking about in this series. Happiness, as you, I can't say the Greek word because yes. it, it sounds Eudaimonia. like a, yeah, because it sounds, it like, sounds a, like a Japanese it, snack. It, well, that or or it and sounds it, like you're wishing somebody to daimoning. Yes, and that's just how Craig Keene explained it to Eudaimonia. me in philosophy class yeah, nice. in this yeah, very yeah. fine institution, nineteen eighty three. But but happiness is not a bad thing. Doing your duty no. is not a bad thing. To to realize that you have obligations and to live in those mm. To respond to a higher motive and to, is not necessarily a not. bad thing. To want to be, to, to strive for excellence and want to be, to push yourself towards excellence. You and I, as professors, uh, have talked several times about how we wish our students would push towards excellence yes. more. 
yeah. and not just do enough to pass, but yeah. to, well, to and, truly strive for excellence. And, and None this, of these are bad no, things. No, and in fact, what we hope is that in these discussions, they can lead to good things or better things or, or maybe even better consequences and better reason. And so one of the things that has to sort of happen here is that in our talking about these things, we have to communicate well with our students, with each other, in our relationships, that whenever we talk, and I talk about this all the time to my students, I say, why are you here? And, and for me, you know, this is a way of getting to know them, but it, it's a way for them to learn to examine their life. And to put at least into the, the mind of ideas and maybe even into the realm of practice, the motive for which I'm here, then to have to ask oneself, is this a good enough motive? Or is it altruistic? Is it, is it you know, right. my way of getting out of the ethical, I'm doing this for the good of humanity, or I'm doing yeah. this just to benefit me? Right. Well, I hope that starts a whole practice of life that is a great consideration of what is good. By the way, the word good comes only from God. What is, what is God? How do we as Treveca form intentionally lives, our lives? How do we practice? How do we think into the greatest and highest representation of all that we motive or intend? But even better, how does God act in, in and through those thoughts, ideas, practices, that philosophy to make us perfect? And by perfect, I mean to shine greater in his image, to love him more and to love each other as we love ourselves, to, to share life together as friends like you and I have for too long, too long, four decades now. You know, I'm a literature guy. Right. Tried to read 40, 50 books a year. Big, big time. The Grand Inquisitor. Oh, yeah. The brothers, the brothers Karamazov. Yeah. Or Karamazov. I don't know. Uh, no, it's Karamazov. But here in the Cause South. Because Craig, Craig Keene said so. Good enough. <laughs> good enough. Because down here in the South, it's Karamazov. Yeah. Karamazov. Karamazov. And the Grand Inquisitor. You know, Jesus comes back yeah. in the Inquisition, arrests Shows Jesus. up. They show up and they, they, yeah, they, they arrest, arrest him. him. Yeah. And they said. He's a dangerous person. And, and the Inquisitor said, you should have given in to the three temptations. Yeah. They didn't need all this free will. They didn't need you to love them and die for them. They needed you to rule them yeah. and feed them Yep. and to establish yourself as their king here on earth because we don't believe they can handle free will. We, we can't. All they need is the church if they will just do what we tell them to yep. do and do their duty. And so it twists around to, to do other than to just tell someone to do your duty, now begins to move into a relationship and trust. Yeah. And where this gets really scary is when it moves into the home. Oh, yeah. And when we as our- Or, as or into parent, the workplace. Or into the workplace. I was going to go there next. Yeah. But when it moves into the family, then as a parent, I have two choices. I can tell my kids, don't have sex. Yeah. Or I can go the much longer, harder route of talking about a life of purity. Yeah. I can tell my kids, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Why? Because you're not old enough. Oh, now what did I just say? By the way, I've decided that no one should be able to drive or get married until they're 35. That's just what I'm thinking these <laughs> I days. I think that it, you shouldn't be able to vote until you're 50 <laughs> based on what's anyway, going on right anyway, now. Back to what you're saying, because it's That's really good. No, it's what it is, is when, when, when the Grand Inquisitor moves into the home and becomes dad, Yeah, 
I don't want you kids making decisions. And obviously there's a curve here. Yeah. You know, a two-year-old doesn't need to be making a lot of decisions. Yeah. But an 18-year-old, if you haven't let them make decisions, guess yeah. what's going to happen when they leave your home and go to college and for the first time in their life? And what you hope is that your duty, that you've impressed on them duty yeah. so strongly that they'll go to college and do their duty. Guess what? We're here on the campus. They're not going to do their duty. Yeah. They're going to take advantage of free will. <laughs> Well, they're going to take advantage of emotivism. Exactly, uh, exactly. If it feels, if it feels if, good, do it. If it feels good, do it. We have to take the longer, harder route yeah. of aiming for something higher than obeying the rules. Yeah. And what's really interesting is you're right, because that's moral formation. That's virtue. That's character. We've got to be able all to tell All that good stuff we're going to get to in the last episode. But, but the yeah. interesting thing right here in any good discussion of, of this way of Kantian understanding of ethics is there are people then who argue if someone keeps the rules and they do something because they've been told to or there's a sense of duty, they're no longer morally culpable. That's right. So a person who goes to war, someone else dies, they're not morally culpable. A kid who does what they've been told and yet someone else gets hurt because of it, you know, or someone doesn't benefit because of it that should have, whatever. They're not morally culpable. No. They're not guilty. No. And that's the other side of this is that not only is guilt removed, we no longer have the ability to talk about them what real autonomy. We've talked about this that's a little bit about earlier. To say. We don't know, have long to talk about what a real expression of full humanity Yeah, and that is, is. not, I was about to say, that's not personhood. No, it's not. At that point, uh, when you can act and not be responsible for the outcome of your actions because you did follow the rules and did your duty, you have allowed yourself to be robbed of your personhood. Yeah, yeah you really have. You have become a means to somebody else's end, and it happens in the business place, yeah. you know, the, or, bu or, the bureaucrats. Yeah. Or you've become a cog in the wheel, or you've become just a faceless part of the political machine a or the military the machine, a brick in the wall, to Pink Floyd. <laughs> And that is, of course, for someone who really believes in this story, the highest form of good. That's right. Because you've just you 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 are nameless, faceless. There's it's anonymous, it's impersonal. You've done your duty, and this is, of course, where a lot of Kant's critics start talking about depersonalization. Right. And that's a whole other in a in a and I think a really big issue because depersonalization on the one hand can talk about the belittling of someone, but on the other hand, it can be about the lack of moral formation and the lack of character in the person who's not culpable because they've done their duty. And I think I think we're both so tempted to jump to the end. That's been the yeah. the, the hardest part, part of doing of this. this episodically. Yeah. Has been the need to get to the end. But I will say this. That if our life is narrative in in, yeah. in shape, right? if we are part of a story, I want to be part of a story that's bigger than duty. Yeah. And I want to be bigger. I want to be part of a story that's bigger than my own happiness. happiness. I want to be part of a story yeah. that's bigger than me being the best version of me. Right. I want to be part of a bigger story. Yeah. And, and that desire in some sense, is the beginning of the philosophical process. Yeah. And 
I think that what we have to do is learn to think. People call, uh, you, you mentioned, we keep mentioning Alistair McIntyre. People call McIntyre's approach, which is really a virtue ethics approach, but it's a, a formation of character. But the academics who sort of stand back and they, they don't want to, you know, McIntyre gets real down and dirty with John Stuart Mill. Of course, he's dead. Uh, you know, Immanuel Kant. Kind of a one-sided <laughs> yeah, fight. Kind of a one-sided <laughs> fight. Uh, but but you know, the academics who— That's now the name of this episode. <laughs> a one-sided fight with two dead men. Yes. <laughs> us. That's fabulous. But, but they call his ethic a meta-ethic. It's the greater story, That's it. the framework. I think we have to think about all of these approaches that way. That's you just right. did it. Yeah. And, and it's really helpful to think of what is the story— within which this meaning, this way of life is embedded. You and I love a way of life called Treveca. We were brought here as little children. We learned to play an instrument. We learned to sing a part. Uh, we learned to, to act uh, towards others in at least polite ways. But, you know, we've really learned how to be friends in a holy way to tell each other the truth about our lives, to love each other's children and respect and help one another in raising children. You know, you and I have done that with each other. I think we need to learn to think about Kant in the same way. What if this story is a story of duty? Well, I, I can't go with that one. What if this story is a story of just my own gratification, that, that what I do is I live philosophically in such a way so that I can take control of a world and create it so that it will again and again, only and always, benefit me, regardless of who else it benefits, regardless of what other needs there may be in the world, regardless of what the good is, what duty there is to things like truth, as long as it benefits me. And to do that without guilt. Yes. To truly and, believe that is what life's right. about. As Nietzsche said, beyond good and evil. That's right. As with, with no need of morality. That's right. Because that's what it would take to live that without that's what cognitive dissonance. I like, think that if we can learn to think of each one of those as a greater story yeah. that actually has characters, that it has like history. You know, you said Kant lived yeah. in a certain culture at a certain time, never travels more than 30 miles from where he lives. Uh, he's a subject of a, of a certain government, you know, that yeah. which is one of the great dilemmas in Kant's life is, you know, the king wants him to do something he doesn't want to do. Oops. And he feels he has a duty, but he has a greater duty to the king than to do what he wants to do. So he writes the king a letter and he says, as long as you're alive, I won't do it. I do my duty. And as soon as the king dies, he starts telling everybody what he really thinks of the Christian faith, which isn't much. But he gets out of it yeah. by creating a duty ethic greater than another duty ethic. And I think that's that, a lot of duty. And that's a lot of duty. And we should stop right there. <laughs> We should stop right there. But, but you know, that is the way we have to learn to have, I think, these discussions and think, because the ability to compare is really what the great Christian liberal arts intellectual environment is about. And that's what we're trying to say in these discussions before we get to the end. Hey, let's compare these things. Let's understand them. Let's understand there may even be a time when these seem fitting I don't want to say that they're right or they're good, but there may be a time when, you know, something is fitting. That is to say, I don't want to deny folks who get a good feeling when they hand someone a dollar. Right. I, I right. number one, don't want to deny the, the person who needs the money, right. their money. But I don't want to even, I don't know that, I, I think that situation means I need to deny them that. I think right. when gratification turns into the desires for consumption and other things, then we're way past that. 
But I think these conversations are healthy and necessary because they can help us grasp the intellectual framework and frameworks, the stories within which we and our students encounter the world and find our lives as God unfolds in his providential way, his gracious activity among us. I think there's probably never been a a better time to have this conversation, too, because there's so much going on. The political debates, the the moral debates, the struggles, the the tensions in our country and the dialogue that's happening in our – whether you're a a college student trying to wrestle with that or whether you're an adult or a grandparent trying to wrestle with – what do I believe in this? Yeah. Because if you don't, you're going to be blown in the wind. And if you find mm-hmm. yourself going, oh, that I, I love this uh, uh, from the, the Fiddler on the Roof where the Tevi is listening to these two oh, guys yeah. argue. And he's yeah. like, what do you think? Tevi goes, he is right. Yeah. And uh, so the other guy makes the point. He goes, he is also right. He goes, Tevi, he is right. He is right. They can't both be right. And Tevi goes, you also are right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I think that's how a lot of people feel in our present environment. Yeah. And I, I've always said for for you to be able to go on a trip, you, you need several things. You need some important things. First of all, you need a map. Yeah. But for a map to do you any good, even if you know your destination, you have to know where you are and you yeah. have to know north. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. And a lot of what we're talking about in this conversation is if you're going to navigate the waters of public opinion and the the current state of ideas, because this is all about the, there's a there's a battle going on. It's a battle of ideas. Yeah. Uh, is it is it McIntyre that said that that uh, politics is civil war by other means? Yes, that's what he said. Um, and that's what we have right now. We have a civil war by other means, and yeah. it's happening in a political realm. If you're going to navigate through this and not lose yourself. You need to know where you are. You need to have a destination. And most importantly, you need to have a true north, a tell-off, something that tells you— A reason for going. A reason for going. That's good, too. That's really good, too. I wish it was mine, but it's one of my professors, so whoever said that to me— Thank you. (laughs) uh, Thank you. Someone said that to me in my first two rounds of Educated Bliss. But yeah, we have to have those things. And these days, I think you're right, we have to be able to compare the different— conversations, not just for what they're saying, or not just for the duties that they propose or portend. Or place upon you. Place upon you. That's portend. Yeah. And, and it's okay. <laughs> anyway. This is, this is, yeah. All right, everybody that knows what portend means, okay. raise your but, hand. But, but, but also, I think we have to, to learn to understand them for the characters and the lives, the cultures that they create and flourish in. And we need to ask ourselves, can we be friends with them? How could we be friends with them? Is there something there that we think is condemnable? Do we need, is there clarity that we must speak with each other in order to secure friendship and in order to be able to tell the truth? And that's not easy to do. No. That takes, and let me say this, that takes real love, real love intelligent love and greater love hath no one than this than they lay down their lives for their friends that's what philosophy is after is real friendship this is the good life is hosted by dean deal and steve hoskins the show is brought to you by the treveca nazarene university alumni association Produced by Wise Company, 
with help from Aaron Fairchild. To learn more or to donate to our show's mission, head over to trevecca.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.